0: Welcome to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the learnings from Startup DNA and the founder's journey. On today's episode, we talk to Elise Tressley, CEO of Realm Foods, as she shares her journey and learnings. I really enjoyed hearing your story from Wall Street to being a two-time founder, as well as digging into what it's like to be a female entrepreneur. Elise, welcome.
1: Hi, Chris. Thank you. Excited oh, thank, to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining. Uh, it'd be great if you could give listeners just a little background on yourself, both kind of the backstory of Realm Foods and then uh, what you did prior.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess I can start uh, from from the beginning. Uh, Feel free to cut me off, though, as you know, I can be long winded. Um, (laughs) um, So I grew up in Iowa, uh, went out to New York to start my career um, after college. Um, I'd actually interned for Lehman Brothers right before they went bankrupt, so that was in 2008. Very interesting time to be there, um, but ended up going out full time to work for Barclays. I, I started out on the trading floor, so traded tech stocks for the first year out of school and then moved over to more of a proprietary research role within the same group. Uh, I was there for a few years and then went over to, um, at the time it was SAC Capital, um, now known as Point72. Um, So lived the hedge fund life for a bit. Um, And then that's where I met my two co-founders of my first startup. Uh, They're both data scientists. And we actually um, ended up leaving after a couple years. Um, we had built out their big data strategy group the last year we were there. And so we ended up starting a, um, a data company, worked on that for um, about three years. And when I was in the process of selling that business, um, I was reconnected with Lauren and had always been really passionate about nutrition and gut health and um, wanted to do something in food. And so this was kind of the right time. I was uh, transitioning into uh, an advisory role with the company that bought my previous one. And so that's how uh, that's, I guess, the the beginning of Rome.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. I completely forgot you worked for Point72 and had such a deep finance <laughs> background, which I obviously love being a former trader.
1: Uh, yes, we, we share a lot of commonalities.
0: <laughs> yes. So, I mean, super interesting. So finance to entrepreneurship, uh, data company to CPG founder. <laughs> it I, sounds I, nonlinear,
1: but yeah. I mean there's dots that connect everything. Well, it was interesting because I, when I went to SAC, that was right before they were charged with their insider trading case. So um, obviously it wasn't there. In you know 2008, when when said events occurred, but um, I was there for uh, the charges, so that was also an interesting time to be there. My my family, you know, none of my my parents own small businesses; they're not in finance, so they started to see the headlines. They're like, "Wait a second, isn't SAC where you went to work? Like, what's <laughs> happening?" <laughs> so it was a wild time to be there, that's for
0: sure. So what what caused the initial uh, change from? finance when you're at point seventy two into entrepreneurship? Yeah.
1: So, um, I was working, so Dan and Robert are my two previous co-founders, both data scientists, and we had been pulled over within SAC, um, uh, along with a couple of senior execs there to start their big data strategy group. The idea there was to take, um, unstructured data, find investment signals, and then, um, still take like a fundamental investing approach. And so, um, we were working on that. And in that process, we were trying to hire about 30 people to build out this division and realized how old school and backwards the um, the HR spaces and sort of talent matching and everything out there at the time, all the platforms were using simple keyword matching and basic filtering. And so we identified this problem and started to research it. Um, I hadn't planned to leave, but I'd always wanted to start a company. And I knew Dan and Robert both kind of had that itch as well. And so we worked really well together and decided um, we continue, you know, we'd see this through build out the division, um, but then go out on our own and actually build a platform that um, what it ended up doing was it had a semantic understanding of a person's resume and a job description, and then scored based off of using NLP, um, eventually, um, um, eventually machine learning. And then that evolved into, um, interestingly enough, what we could actually call AI. Um, I think that word's thrown around quite a bit. But um, yeah, so we worked on that for a few years. But that was sort of the transition and why it was really what it boiled down to is identifying a problem and, and wanting to solve it. Um, and so yeah, finally had my chance to, to go start something.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Uh, and then after that, you were acquired. Um, yes, <laughs> which not not all founders can say. So, I mean, can you just talk through? You know, share specifics of, you know, terms or even who. But what was that process like for you after building a company and then ultimately selling it? Was it positive experience? Was it difficult? Uh, can you just walk us through that?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, to be candid, I would say mixed. Um, the conclusion, I mean, Dan and Robert and I are very happy with how it turned out. And, and the end result was good. Um, we joke. We're like, you know, we're not retiring, but it was a it was a good we we found a really good fit and it was a um, like very happy with with how it played out. That said, leading up to it, we actually had um, a pretty big deal fall through at the onset. So we had what happened was we had gone out to um to raise around and we were then approached about an, uh, about being acquired. So it wasn't, um, as though we were out looking to do that. And so we stepped back and, you know, really assessed all of our options and it was a really incredible potential offer. And so we went down that route and I think something I learned is until, you know, the money is wired or the docs are signed or however you want to put it. Um, nothing is, is certain. Um, and for sure. And so it was interesting. It was kind of a roller coaster ride. Um, maybe this is probably a a conversation worth over beers, but (laughs) (laughs) I won't, I won't get into too much detail, but yeah, so it was, it was, I would say, you know, there were definitely positives and negatives of the experience, but overall learned so much from that process. Um, And uh, yeah, we ended up a later stage startup ended up uh, purchasing us. We love the management team. We we negotiated because at that time, the acquisition process ended up being so long because of that deal falling through um, after doing a ton of diligence with them. Um, it ended up being a lot longer than expected. And so we were kind of all in the mindset of, okay, what are we doing next? How do we negotiate where um, we can be advisors, but we don't have to actually go with the company. I had already started talking to Lauren, which, you know, Dan and Robert knew, we were all very open with each other. Um, and I think that was really key to things working out is Dan, Robert and I were very transparent, open and honest with each other about what we wanted out of the acquisition, um, what we wanted to do next. So um, so, yeah, it, it all worked out in the end, learned a ton, and I use a lot of those lessons now.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. We've seen a few deals that were stretched out. Uh, it almost seems like a strategy, maybe, <laughs> to get mm, a better deal yes. at the end of the day.
1: I've learned, <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, What is it? Like this, the quotes, business is war. It felt like that. <laughs> it's like, I see what you're doing. Um, yes. So I think there was, there were definitely things I learned um, in nuance to that process that are, you know, strategic ways to negotiate that you don't learn in business school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That makes complete sense. Uh, So then you launched Realm Foods with Lauren. Uh, How did you, I mean, had you always wanted to launch a CPG company? Were you tired of data software? What was, or was it just kind of the right place, right time?
1: uh well a lot a lot of what you just said um so funny enough i my very first startup idea um that I'd started to work on i even had a name which was terrible um but uh was a one on one dietitian app this was Years and years ago, when I was actually still at Barclays, I had started to kind of research that. So my interest and passion for nutrition goes way back. Um, And I think like many of us, um, Lauren included, this is something we shared, but have struggled with gut health issues. I mean, over 80 percent of the U.S. has gut health issues. So it's a pretty common thing. Um, And just, you know, I had gone to a dietitian and, and revamped my diet. and It was a game changer for me. And so I wanted to replicate that in some way. I didn't know how, and that was my first idea. Um, So fast forward through more finance, AI, (laughs) HR startup, and um, then getting reconnected with Lauren. Um, Lauren and I shared a mutual friend. She went to high school with our friend, Kelly, who was my roommate in New York. We were both living in New York at the time. And when I was in the process of selling Upscored, um, the the AIHR company, um, our friend Kelly had said, you know, you know Lauren, you guys get along really well. She's sort of working on a food idea. And at the time, Lauren was still a marketing director in the wine industry, but she was playing around in the kitchen, and her husband Adam, too, was involved. He's great. Um, and so they were they were starting to think of kind of this product idea. And she's like, you know, you're always talking about, this is Kelly, you're always talking about gut health and, you know, food and what, what I should be eating. You know, you, you guys need to like grab dinner. And so that was the start. We started talking about um, just the food business in general and how, you know, preservatives are in everything and how it doesn't have to be that way. And I um, started talking about the, you know, the actual idea. And so like I said, Laura was working on it um, but we shared this pain point of um you know those mornings when um well back pre-COVID you know you're running out the door or now you're running to your desk to hop on a conference call and you grab kind of a coffee and a bagel cream cheese or whatever's around for breakfast or maybe you don't even eat at all. That was, you know, us we were skipping breakfast constantly. Um, and then you feel hungry, you're in a bad mood, <laughs> you know, you're then reaching for whatever junk later in the day is around. And that was really the the pain point we were experiencing as we knew we needed to eat healthy, but there really wasn't, um, you know, convenient, no prep options out there that were delicious, didn't have preservatives. Um, so that's what we set out to, to create.
0: I will say you're the only portfolio company whose product I use every single day.
1: I love that. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, my wife I and I that. have smoothies every morning and our two-year-old son also gets a little side smoothie uh, as well.
1: That makes me sick. <laughs> you know, kids are like the, like they're going to tell you the truth that they don't like it. So we always say if someone is, um, you know, if their kids are having it, we're like, okay, that's great because we know <laughs> if they don't yeah. like it, they're not going to eat it.
0: Yes, yeah, so um, I'm so happy you came out with the bulk <laughs> pack because I still have lots of individuals, but it's, it's made my life amazing.
1: Oh, good. That's been big in COVID, but that makes me so happy to hear that.
0: Um, And I do
1: see your name come up when we're doing cohort analysis. on (laughs) I see you come up a lot. So, um, so yes, thank you so much for being so supportive um, and obviously thrilled that you have it every day. I
0: love it. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the product itself? I mean, I could, but I'd probably butcher it. So (laughs) where you guys are now, I guess future vision of Realm. just like exactly what it is
1: yeah so uh realm is a smoothie blend made of dried and crushed fruits veggies nuts and protein we use plant protein so it's fully vegan Um, no dairy no preservatives uh, no added sugar that's really important all the sugars are from the real fruit Um, it's interesting we use this freeze drying and dehydrating process um, when we actually create the blends, uh, you, that sort of preservation method's been around for years, but we feel it's really underutilized. Um, and so, you know, what's cool is, is you, it's like, it looks like a protein powder, it's all of that real food. Um, and you just make it with, um, you can do, you know, one of two ways. You can make it anywhere with water and a shaker bottle. Um, or you, you know, if you want a little bit more of a frothy um, finish to it, you can do it in like a NutriBullet or a blender with almond milk and ice. Um, so I, I'm kind of a mix, like sometimes when I'm at home and I have a little more time, it still takes 15 seconds. I'll make it in the blender when I'm on the go, you know, especially when we're all back to traveling eventually, it's great for airports flights. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the, the basic concept. And then when it comes to the nutrition side, um, it's fully macro balanced. So we, we really wanted something where we would actually stay full, um, Oftentimes when you're having smoothies, it's mostly fruit and veggie based. Um, So you're not getting that, um, you know, you're not getting all the like complex carbs, healthy fats, protein in that in that macro balance you should be getting or at least to stay full. Um, And so that's a huge differentiator. There's really nothing else on the market um, that that has the macro balance taste good, um, you know, plant based and and truly convenient.
0: Yes, I do blender and then I throw in banana and blueberries just a little bit and it's
1: i like that delicious. mix it up a little bit yeah i sometimes i'll do um i like to maybe like a scoop of peanut butter mm-hmm. um my jam lately has been cashew milk that's oh. really good yes so
0: i try then, to do a good milk whenever i can
1: i was just like gonna to say fart. the one two punch <laughs> is. It's Brooke's product at Uh Good Milk. And yes, big fan. We're big fans of Good Milk and love Brooke. And um, yeah, it's the best way to make it is Good Milk and Realm together.
0: (laughs) I love it. Yeah, so good. We can plug Brooke in here for sure.
1: There you go.
0: (laughs) Uh, So going, uh, launching, we've done a. uh, a handful of CPG deals. Uh, that's one of our verticals. What for you was the biggest learning curve or something you didn't expect uh, going from you know, HR tech to actually mm-hmm. making and shipping products, uh, product quality, uh, just all of that?
1: Yeah, this might, I mean, this might sound obvious and you, you've actually just kind of led into it, but it's very different scaling those two types of businesses. Um, so with Upscored, it's like if we wanted to add a product feature, we would just code it. If we want obviously, I wouldn't do that. I wasn't our I wasn't our tech side of the business, but we would just we would be able to iterate and we could scale as fast as we wanted to an extent. It was a marketplace, so we had the supply-demand dynamic, but you can scale faster, you can make changes quicker, you can get with the product, you know, if you're changing the recipe you need to get through your current production run. Um, and, and then if you change anything with the recipe, we're changing the labels. So it's the inventory management side of it. And just the um, the delay in like what you can do with product feedback um, is very different. And so that was something where even when we were fundraising, we were talking to, you know, you guys are awesome because you do, you invest across the board. So you, you got it right away. Um, but oftentimes when we were talking to like investors that are mostly investing in in tech or internet, um, explaining the concept of, we have to manage growth. Like we can't just, it's almost like you, we were in, especially when we're bootstrapping, we had to pull back growth levers so we wouldn't sell out. We sold out three different times, which is a great problem to have. But, um, but you just, yeah, it's, it's it's a different it's a different approach when you um, when you have product you can sell out. Of.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> I'm like, oh, we can't. This marketing catalyst we're really excited about. Like we um, we have to time this right with our next production run. Now that we have funding, it's it's much easier. Bootstrapping the business was um, you know a lot different. We bootstrapped up upscored in the beginning as well. Um, you know, when you don't have that upfront capital, you can't get into production as fast. Um, now it's a different story we are doing larger production runs and, um, you know, we've tightened up the supply chain and things like that. But, um, so it's all very doable to scale quickly. Um, but when you're bootstrapping, it's a lot harder.
0: <laughs> if you had to launch one, if, let's say you're starting a company, Realm and Upscore or don't didn't exist, don't exist what would you do? Do you have like, would you do a different industry or have you really gravitated towards one or the other?
1: At Realm hands down. I mean, I loved working, my co-founders of, um, uh, of Upstart like loved working with them. So that's, that's definitely not a knock on the team by any means. We had a blast, but, um, but as far as the team we have now with Realm, the, Product. I mean, I'm obviously consuming it every day. So there's there's something different when you know you're you're solving a pain point that you experienced, and you you know you, you with hiring, it's like that's something that we did experience. Um, but being so passionate about the industry, being a consumer of the product, um, I think that's the one of the biggest learnings um, for me now. Being on the second startup is. You have to just be obsessed with uh, the industry, the problem, you know, super jazzed and passionate about um, what you're doing because when, you know, the times are tough or you're problem solving, it's like, that's what you always go back to. Um, So yeah, hands down, I always want to be in this space. Um, I just, I love it. I finally feel like, you know, after a couple different jobs in finance, after starting a tech <laughs> company, I'm like, no, I finally feel at home. Like, this is what I'm meant, meant to be doing.
0: <laughs> I love to hear that. I'm still, uh, I think venture is it for me, but I'm still figuring it out.
1: <laughs> well, we're all like, it's like, I always joke in the room, I'm like, what do you like, what do I want to be when I grow up? But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, generally speaking, I, I, yeah, I just finally feel like I'm, I'm right where I should be. Uh,
0: when we invested, you were doing, you're going through a rebrand. And that's something a lot of times we invest a little later, where I think companies... Of kind of either solidified branding and even name of the company, so it was interesting for me to see, and I think that's something everyone struggles with. I Every mean, even at Kinetic, we talk about it all the time. Do should we focus on our persona, like target personas, and our brand mission, and just general voice? What was the? Can you talk people through the rebranding process and what what you learned from that?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. So it it started with something that actually maybe would sound very simple, but um then you peel back the onion and you realize a lot of things that you can change and improve. But we actually we started by just wanting to change the name. Um and the, the catalyst to that was so the, the name previously was meal, M-E-L-E with a macron over the E. Um. Pronunciation, by the way, is very important with the name. So <laughs> we came up, that was a lesson. we
0: learned. I didn't even is, know that was called a macron or whatever you just said.
1: <laughs> I, neither did I, actually. Um, so it's, it, it's a, it was clever because it, it was the origin of the word Neil. Um, there were a lot of cool things about it. Short, you know, a little bit different. Um, but what we found was um, people couldn't pronounce it, and they were also pronouncing it differently. So we couldn't even lean into you know, the mispronunciation. So people would say Melee or Melee. And again, like hindsight 2020, this is gonna sound very obvious, but th- there's no way that that can't be affecting word of mouth. If people, the conversation should be, here's the name of the company, the product's awesome, you should try it. Not, I think it's Melee or Melee. I'm not sure. And like, when you think if people do say it right, if someone goes to Google it, then they may be Googling meals. So we were finding we started to dig deeper, like our SEO results and things like that, search queries, um, it started to, like all the data started to kind of pile up that we needed to make a change. Um, so that was, that was the beginning of the rebrand. And then when we started thinking about, you know, we're, we're very focused on our customers. We're always having one-on-one conversations and surveying them and looking at the data and kind of marrying that all together to, to form conclusions um, and, and how we need to evolve and, and things we need to, to be doing on the product side, et cetera. And so um, we, we started to realize like, okay, we've been on the market for a while now. We know so much more about our customers. Like we launched, we gathered data and now we know a lot more. Why not refine the branding to to fit her and, and and continue to to improve um you know the look, feel and the way we're communicating with her. And so that was sort of how it evolved into a full on rebrand. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend doing a rebrand <laughs> during COVID, also during fundraising. Like the it was the timing was interesting um and luckily you guys were really great and all the investors we ended up um bringing onto the cap table um were very understanding of of writing us a check in the midst of a rebrand um and why we were doing it it was a pretty methodical process but in any case um it was yeah the last year has been interesting
0: (laughs) Yeah, even you have labels and you're already shipping it and have mm-hmm. customers. Uh, well, then
1: inventory, the same thing mm-hmm. is with, you know, with tech. It's like a name change and a rebrand. Um, of course, there is a lot involved with that. But yeah, with us, it's like we had to sell out of the old product. Luckily, we were still, you know, in the midst of like bootstrapping and bringing in um, investors. So we kept selling out. So we were actually like, okay, we can do this a little quicker than we expected because we're selling faster than we we thought. So that was, a, I guess, a good thing, but we actually just let our inventory sell out um, and then took a bit, a step back and did a bit more. Um, it took a bit more time, you know, obviously with the next production run to make sure all the rebrand was in place in the right way. Uh, so yeah, it was a fun process though. I, I loved, I love my favorite thing is understanding consumer behavior and our customers. So it was really fun to take that. And then you kind of get this, like it's it's like, you know, you're launching the company again in a way, but with a lot more data and information.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. Hopefully we raise our next fund and have a little more operating budget to do a full rebrand of our own. Cause I, I think it would be just a super fun process to go through uh, and something that you just don't think about all the time, or have really the bandwidth to do it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, it's always top of mind for me.
1: Well, I'm here for that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you
1: want, I, well, obviously CPG and, and venture is a little different, but I'm happy to share any of the like frameworks we use for it.
0: I will remember that. Uh, so you've you've raised capital, you've exited. Uh, you're female entrepreneur. Was there anything through your whole experience that you know, was unusual to you or or what's it like being a female entrepreneur right now?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting is when I was in finance and then even in tech, I got pretty used to being the only woman in the room a lot of the time. And so what I loved about this experience, and this is very specific to me, but um, Lauren actually is the first female I've worked directly with, like, obviously I've worked, I worked with women in finance and tech in different capacities, but like literally my teams have always been men. And so that's been really fun. Um, And we actually, our first two hires and this wasn't on purpose, but they're both women as well. Um, And so that's been really fun. I do feel like in CPG, there's a little bit more diversity. I I don't know the stats, but it feels like there's more female founders. Um, And so I guess that's just an observation and something that's been different for me. I will say though, as a whole, there's still a huge problem. I mean, you know, it's something like 2% of funding um, goes to women-led startups and it's not as though we're out there or not out there. It's not, it's not a pipeline issue. Um, There's not 2% of the companies raising out there that are, that are, you know, only 2% that are women. So Um, There's still a major problem. And what I always think is kind of interesting um, is uh, I had always sort of identified myself as um, even with the previous company as just a founder or, um, you know, a boss or whatever. Um, I I hope there's a day where we don't need to identify ourselves as female founder or women led business. I think it's absolutely necessary now because um, there's recognition of this problem. And so you know, calling it out that hey, I'm a female founder. Um, you know, people are paying more attention. But I hope someday it's just you know, I'm just founder. Um, so we'll, we'll see. But we're you know, we're Lauren and I are both very passionate about um, uh, hopefully you know the the I guess these industries as a whole getting to, to parity.
0: That's interesting you say that. Yeah, I struggle with it in the venture ecosystem as well. Uh, the last two years, there's been. A large number of only funds that are only concentrated on certain demographics. And while I, I, that's obviously needed, uh, based on the current funding situation, it's still such a small pool of money. So it's saying, uh-huh. well, Elise, why don't you go talk to this female venture fund that only invests in women founders that, you know, they've just raised $5 million versus all of the capital is still controlled by, you know, a handful of funds. That it just it, it isn't in my mind addressing the problem. Whereas Completely agree. All funds should deploy some sort of strategy, and yeah, hiring is a component to it, uh, especially since venture is solely a human capital-driven industry. Mm-hmm. But there's so many other things you can do, and obviously I'm biased. We use an automated process, and Wendell doesn't know race, age, or gender. Uh, but it's just. Yeah, I don't think the solution is only fun, Just like you shouldn't have to say you're a female founder to qualify for uh, funding.
1: That's why I loved. I mean, I loved the process with Wendell. We can get into that later. But what I yeah, loved let's about, talk what about you,
0: about you <laughs> Wendell process. Now, well,
1: I, I think you hit on a huge point. It's there. We all have to acknowledge there's unconscious bias. Um, you know, we oftentimes places hire people that look, you know, look like them. It, it you know, it's, it, it's just this removing this unconscious bias is a, is a huge thing. And, and while I agree, you know, the only funds are, are important and necessary. Um, the, the problems within these bigger funds um, need to be addressed. And I think that's so cool and innovative what you're doing with Wendell and actually similarly, with Upscored, with hiring, part of our process using data science as well was to remove that unconscious bias and actually score people based on a deeper skill set um, outside of, you know, name, age, um, et cetera, gender. Um, so I, I I love what you're doing. So excited to talk about that.
0: <laughs> well, so what was... Uh... So for anyone that doesn't know, uh, Kinetic uses or has built software called Wendell that automates the initial due diligence process. And what, what we use it for is it's really a filtering tool where Wendell tells us which deals we're more likely to invest in. So if companies Wendell recommends, we end up investing in, I believe it's now close to 30%. So that's saying of, companies that we talk to, like human to human, we're likely to do 30% of those deals compared to the venture average is about 0.5%. So it's really, I mean, we're just trying to increase efficiency and it's not saying that any company we pass on is bad or uh, nothing of that sort, but it's saying, you know, these companies that it's saying yes to, we're, we're just much more likely to do. So what was, I guess you've been through a couple of fundraisings, two companies, How was the process for you compared to uh, traditional fundraising?
1: I loved it. It was it was refreshing and and very efficient. Um, So uh, your process is, I mean, the the actual like questionnaire and and um, assessment is 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 pretty quick. Um, So that's great in itself. The results were like scarily. You know, on point. Uh, when Lauren and mm-hmm. I took our, you know, and I, I probably even have more of a hesitation when it comes to data science and AI because I was in the weeds on that for so m- many years that we got really, um, we got really frustrated when people would say, "Oh, yeah, we're your companies would say we're using AI," and I'm like clearly that's not the case, or using data science, and and clearly it was very like you know simple technology. So I think I probably. Uh, you know, not intentionally, but approach to thinking, okay, like, let's, let's see here how this does. And, um, Lauren and I, uh, were, you know, sort of and bat- we're like, this is just, it's just very, very accurate. So I was a, my DNA profile is a problem solver. Um, but just even the, even the details and the nuance that you you gave us about us and the, and the company as a whole, um, was, was spot on. So, um, Uh, Anyway, that was a very interesting part of the process. And then I loved how we got our individual assessments. But then we also got an entire, you know, sort of profile rundown of the company. Um, So that's helpful. It was not just it was not just efficient, but also as Lauren and I think about how we work together. And then we've now had our Lisa and Gina, our our full time hires, they've taken it, um, as you know, And you you sort of you you use it and how you're you understand when someone's responding to something in a certain way um, that you know when you know more about their personality type um, and how they work and what their strengths and weaknesses are it it really makes a more um, harmonious uh, sort of partnership and work environment amongst the team so uh, we've been using it in that way too
0: yeah I believe Lauren I know Lauren's an influencer (laughs) we're doing all this work around. Dynamic duos and what is the best like one two founding profile match and just for relationship even uh, there's some technical things we're looking into as well but yes problem solver influencer very good one two <laughs> punch great
1: <laughs>
0: and Happy I'm also a problem that. solver so I'm a little biased but uh, <laughs> one of my favorite profiles. I, I, me too, me too. Uh, So what from, we've we have our own LPs, we fundraise, we, we see things we would like to change, I guess, throwing Kinetic Wendell aside, what are things in just the venture ecosystem that you think would, founders could benefit from changing a little bit?
1: that's a great question um i wish that everyone we talked to uh was as efficient uh as as you guys um i think a better process up front for for assessing whether a on on the investor side whether a deal is going to make sense for them um and for the founders you know whether an investor is going to be a right fit i i just feel there's there's sort of this messy long process of kind of almost dating where you have a conversation and then, you know, all of a sudden it's three conversations later. And um, then sometimes you ultimately get to a no. And the reason sometimes is something that was very obvious up front. Like you don't, um, we have a revenue benchmark and you're not there. Well, I mean, we, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of one of those things where I'm like, okay, if it's something you knew up front, Like we can have a conversation for the next round, but why did we continue uh, talking? So I I just think there could be more parameters set like you guys do where you're very I mean, it's it's great. It's like it's a quick no or a quick yes to move forward. Um, And then you also you get very serious. If, it's a, if Wendell passes the company, um, you get very serious and then you're focused on making it fast for the founders. And it's hard when you're juggling as a founder, a lot of different conversations and investors and it drags on with, with certain investors. So I would just say um, this is kind of a long winded, convoluted answer, but um, just finding efficiencies up front.
0: Yeah. But well, even we have this, uh, the no is still hard, even though we have... This automated, super straightforward process where it's yes or no. And so I can't imagine without that, uh, there's just, there's so many, you know, we talked about biases coming through. You, know, you really like founders a lot of the time and don't want to hurt their feelings. So yeah, I, it's great. It would be so hard for me to get to the no without you know, every company going through the same thing.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, as founders, it's on us too to do the same where I don't, you know, when I go started the fundraising process, I had a detailed spreadsheet. I didn't reach out to anyone that, you know, wouldn't make sense. So they had to be a or an angel investor who was already investing either in the space or um, and also um, at the right stage, etc. So it is on the founders um, to do their diligence up front as well. But Um, yeah, it can be a, it's, it's, it is a big distraction from the business to be blunt.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, and that's, I think everyone always reads about the anomalies or outliers of company, a great idea. Well, if you take clubhouse, which is the most recent example of, $100 a hundred million dollar company just based on <laughs> idea. It, yeah. Everyone reads about that, but the actual process I mean is months. You know, for us, launching a venture fund, raising this fund took eighteen months total, which is you know, a little longer than startups, but yeah, the the process is so hard.
1: Oh yeah, I it's crazy. I've learned a little bit more about the fundraising process for funds and I think I hadn't realized that it, it's it is such a long process.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just operating, but like so much of it is shared experiences with founders, just what they go through. And I mm-hmm. don't think founders quite realize that, that you know, in terms of you know, low salary, mostly equity and upside if things go well and tough decisions because you don't have large operating budgets. I, I don't know. I, I think investors at least you know call it funds sub 50 100 million uh it's such a similar environment and work life that uh, founders don't always appreciate which is entertaining well,
1: i think you also have the challenge <laughs> i can see that by the way because people don't realize you the money doesn't just appear out of thin air um for funds um well and you also have the challenge of oftentimes i think raising the next fund before you know there's been a, a good amount of exits because you're what five to 10 years is the use, usual exit time frame. Sometimes you're raising the next one before that, that time has lapsed. So I imagine it's really hard because you can obviously report on how the companies are doing, but um, at least when you're raising a, if you're um, fundraising for a startup, unless it's just off of an idea, you have traction to show um, sales or whatever, you know, users, whatever that may be. I feel like it's gotta be tough. For a fund, when you know you know you're 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 raising a couple years in, maybe to the, to the previous yeah, don't, fund.
0: Don't make me go back there. We just closed our latest one. I don't want.
1: Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> That's Sorry, huge. You. That's awesome. Uh,
0: well, this has been great. Any parting thoughts, words of wisdoms for uh, potential startups founders, uh, especially in the CPG space.
1: Um, so yeah, I think two quick lessons that I learned the first go around, so not necessarily specific to CPG. Um, one being, I think early on, once you know what you're building and you you know you're building something that's needed, I think identifying skill gaps and then bringing on either advisors or team members or whoever whomever that may be um, to help fill those skill gaps. I think with my first company, we had this sort of bootstrapping mentality where we wanted to do everything ourselves and um, maybe ignorantly didn't didn't have that conversation. And we, we brought on one advisor when we could, could have used more. And so with Realm we approached that very differently. We figured out early on where our, our um, skill gaps were and then we brought on experts in those areas. Um, so I think asking for help, um, is, is not just okay, it's necessary. And then secondly, which is kind of in the same vein, um, having a support system of either other founders outside of your co-founder or if you're a sole founder, um, having you know friends that are going through the same experience and being able to talk about that has been really important for me. So I was in We did an accelerator. It was a zero equity accelerator early on out of New York um, with Upsquart. And I've stayed very close friends with two of the founders in my class. And we just we can chat about anything from specific business problems to, you know, more personal stuff. Um, And I think that support system has been really huge. So I would say uh, both kind of fall under that, you know, be okay with asking for help uh, mentality.
0: Uh That's great. Is there... You did an accelerator. Anywhere else you can think of to meet other people, other co-founders or not co-founders, other founders that you can bounce things off of?
1: Well, you guys are great with introing us to other portfolio um, company founders. So I think... If you have investors asking them if there would be someone good within their portfolio to talk to, that's one way. If you're pre fundraising um, without with covid, there's obviously not really meetups happening, um, but there's different there's different slack groups and, and places where um, either you can. I guess sign up and, and then just reaching out to someone saying, Hey, I think we have a, a lot in common war. I, I don't think a cold email is a bad idea either. You see someone in your space, they're doing something cool. Just reaching out and saying, Hey, we'd love to have a call. Um, I think, I think when we're, things are opening back up again, it'll be easier to just grab coffee. That's probably the more normal thing um, in a normal world. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think just being open to, um, to just reaching out to people is also a good way.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it's I was just thinking, I was like, well, it would be great for us to actually meet in person sometime as well.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> it,
0: it's so strange.
1: It's so strange. Um we it's interesting when we have so half of our fundraising was done pre-covid and we were um like in the midst of calling our kind of first round of checks the week the world flipped upside down in mid-March last year. And um, so half of our fundraising, like we've met investors in person and the other half we haven't. So it's just a bizarre dynamic.
0: We we (laughs) rarely meet any founders at this point, but it's getting, we have so many now and like they're starting to be concentrated where we feel like we need to start doing some trips and actually (laughs) meeting them in person.
1: That would be fun. We're we're always down to to do that.
0: All right. Well, we will get on the books. Thank you so much for joining me. I love your background, uh, your story, and uh, it's been great getting to know you.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. Same, and, and really appreciate it.
0: All right. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. Kinetic Ventures is an early-stage VC that is disrupting venture capital by replacing the pitch with an automated, data-driven approach. What's the benefit? A completely unbiased investment process that allows funders to spend more time building their business. To learn more about Kinetic or apply for funding, please visit us at www.kinetic.ventures.